everyone. Welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about true crime and history. My name is Laura, and it's been a little bit. I'm moved. I'm still living in Denver, and I'm eager to get episodes up and running again. I have a short historical for you today, and I'll have a larger end-of-the-month episode for you as well. Thank you, everyone, for all of your kind messages. Um... I'm really doing okay now, and I'm excited to get back on this saddle. So today's historical is from a new book that I bought called Wicked Denver, Mile High Misdeeds and Malfeasance by Sheila O'Hare and Alfred Dick. And it's crammed with just a ton of really fascinating stories that I've never heard of. So there is a ton of material left to go through. I've got so much planned and so many books that I'm sort of working on reading. So just buckle up and I hope to get a lot of episodes out um, here at the end of this year and throughout the fall. So this case today, it may be appropriate to cover at this time, is a case involving mental illness. And around this time that this case took place, along with many others, Denver was known in the United States for its large number of murder-suicides. Local physicians attributed it to the altitude, and remarkably enough, the effects of altitude on depression and anxiety is still something that's being researched to this day. A decent number of these murder-suicides also involved an anti-Christian science sentiment. So I'm unfamiliar with uh, Christian science as a church and especially not familiar with why it apparently had such a hold in Denver in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I did a little research to give us a little bit of background on this. Christian science emerged in the late 19th century as the Christian church's response to Darwinism and scientific research into things like the origins of humanity and other criticisms that were emerging against the Bible and the church in general. It was founded in the U.S. by um, Mary Baker Eddy, and she wrote a book called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. And it said that Mary was really, really preoccupied with the question of God's responsibility for human suffering and attempting to reconcile God's purpose and role there. So the church was a landing place for anyone who was still devoted to their faith, but also beginning to accept newer secular ideas about stuff like evolution and the history of the earth and um, find a place to really express their criticisms of the content of the Bible or maybe reflect on them literally or, in their opinion, scientifically. So anyone who couldn't reconcile um, science and religion were drawn to Christian science. So the Christian Science Church itself is known for the controversial practice of spiritual healing. It supports other alternative healing methods like homeopathy, hydrotherapy, etc., basically using Christian spiritualism as a healing tool and mixing it with certain other hands-on applications. So I'm not a huge expert on the Bible, but supposedly a lot of the spiritual healing claims come from stories in the Bible in which Jesus heals people with, you know, non-medical, whatever those would have been at the time, techniques. So thus was born um, the quote-unquote science of using Christianity as a healing method and of the worship as Jesus as a scientist anyway. So Colorado was officially made a state only months after Mary Eddy published this book and the beginnings of this as a predominant Denver religion started with a man named G.O.B. Wickersham in 1885 when he came to Denver and basically just started spreading the word 
And a few months after this, a class began in a Denver home, and by 1888, so many were interested in this class that they had to move to a public hall. And by 1891, this organization had declared itself an official church. The first actual church was built on Logan and 18th. And so due to really high demand, five more lots around this area were purchased for buildings. The church was not officially dedicated until 1906 because apparently no Christian science church is allowed to be dedicated until it's debt-free. So in the following decades, this church became fairly prominent in Denver, and uniquely so, because it moved in and developed kind of at the same time Denver really developed as a city. So I guess the two just went hand in hand. And also along this time, the anti-Christian science movement in Denver was gaining steam. Um, And we see something really similar going on right now. Basically, every wrongdoing or immorality or societal, societal problem under the sun was attributed to one group by the other. Doctors hated the Christian scientists because people weren't going to see the doctors. Public health and child protective services sought out ways um, that mystical spirituality could be leading their kids astray. Meanwhile, anti-Christian scientists hated that the church promoted um, female self-assertion and independence. And it goes on and on. So, a lot of tensions sort of were rising And oddly enough, a lot of murders took place in which um, Christian science was kind of named as a driver of the murder, even in cases where it couldn't really be determined what role exactly Christian science played in the development of that murder. So naturally, um, this clash of beliefs was found um, at the core of several murders um, during the early, early 20th century in Denver. And one of these murders that I'm going to discuss today occurred in 1919. On December 9th, 1919, Emily Lippincott Powell, 38 years old, shot and killed her 10-year-old daughter Jacqueline in their apartment on 1000 Corona Street. Over the span of four hours, Emily Powell wrote three notes and then she shot herself. Yet Emily Powell did not die. So a butler for this apartment slash sort of hotel residence, I guess, with a butler service, um, discovered Emily Powell and the body of her daughter um, as he entered the room with a breakfast tray. And he had this to say as his testimony at the coroner's inquest. About five minutes to nine, I went up to Mrs. Powell's room with a breakfast tray. I knocked and heard her turning over in bed. I knocked again and she asked, what is it? And I answered your breakfast tray, ma'am. And then she opens the door a little and I shoved it open the rest of the way with my elbow. I saw all the blood. What's the matter? I asked. I guess I'm crazy, she said to me. I killed my daughter and I shot myself. I ran out to the banister and called Mrs. Currens to come quick. So obviously, eventually the police came, as um, did Dr. Samuel Goldhammer, the police surgeon, who later testified that they found Emily Powell with a gunshot wound across her forehead and the body of Jacqueline was on the bed and had been dead for some time. They drove Emily to the hospital and they all noted that she was pretty much completely silent the entire time that she was on the way to the hospital, sort of just staring blankly out of the window with this gash across her forehead. 
the resident that was brought up um, by the butler, Mrs. Eleanor Currens, testified that she had heard noises above her head and she thought Emily had just dropped an iron. And then she heard some more bangs and some dragging sounds. And what she actually heard was Emily shooting her daughter twice and then shooting at herself three times, two of the shots apparently missing and one grazing her forehead. I do find it vaguely amusing that this woman basically heard a attempted murder-suicide above her head in a Denver apartment building and didn't really think much of it, but I've lived in Denver apartment buildings, so I guess I can understand this. Emily Powell had been born into a relatively wealthy and prominent family in Philadelphia. She attended an elite girls prep school named Miss Porter's School, and she was raised in relative privilege. Before her fate in a Denver apartment, she had lived in Denver for 10 years, and she was the former wife of Edwin Powell, who she eloped with in 1905. Their marriage was largely financed by her family and was pretty unhappy, and it ended in divorce in 1908. They had two children, Horace and Jacqueline, um, and Jacqueline was born after their divorce was actually finalized. Edwin Powell was working in San Francisco at the time of the murder, and his mother, Mrs. Elizabeth Powell, took over the affairs after this in Denver. And she noted that Edwin didn't really care much about his former wife or two children. He didn't speak of them. And she imagined that this incident of his daughter being murdered would not interest him. Lovely. So Horace, the son, was living in a boarding school in Colorado Springs at the time. And Elizabeth Powell expressed her desire for him to be sent back to live with Emily's family in Philadelphia, as neither she nor Edwin really wanted anything to do with him. So what appeared to still be eluding everyone was why Emily Powell did this. And the peculiar notes that she had written around the apartment were a bit of a clue. One was written on the back of a photograph of a woman named Mrs. W.N. Alley. And she had lived in the same building for about a month and by all accounts was only barely acquainted with Emily Powell. So here's what that note says that's on the back of her photograph. All my life, my love, my prayers have been thrown back at me. Maybe with my death, my curses will be heard. In the name of the so-called Mrs. Alley, I hereby curse Christian science. May every one of them in the universe be stricken with some loathsome disease, and all their churches rock and totter from the foundations. And cursed be the hand that shall destroy the picture and the paper that will not publish her fake Christian science face in this curse. So in this little letter, she places a curse on the photograph and curses pretty much anybody who seeks to destroy it instead of publishing it to expose... Um, Mrs. Alley as this fake Christian science person that she believed her to be. But what was interesting was that um, Mrs. Alley was not a member of the Christian Science Church, and she also told police that while she barely knew Emily Powell, she was probably the person that she was closest to in the building. And other residents avoided Emily because she was constantly complaining about ailments. So she seemed to be having some delusional thoughts, and those delusional thoughts really trickled over into the next note that was found in the room. And this note basically revealed that Emily Powell thought her son Horace had died. 
And here's what it reads. I wish before I died, I might have known who I am and what has always been wrong with my life. The more I loved people, the more I always hurt them. Perhaps had I been more clever, I could have found where the fault lay. My boy is dead and Jacqueline and I are going. If someone would have only told me something, maybe my death or some atonement I could have made would have saved them, but I do not know. My head and my eyes ached so that I could not think well. I hope that my family are all well and happy and I have not hurt them for I have never been well or happy. May God take Jacqueline's soul. He has my boys. So the police were baffled with this note because her son Horace was definitely not dead. And they basically kind of searched around for any explanation they could find for this murder and attempted suicide um, as evidenced by their ultimate decision that Emily Powell's tobacco smoking habit was the cause of her delusions. She was such a prolific smoker that her nails and her fingers were permanently stained deep brown. And Mrs. Elizabeth Powell, um, mother of the ex-husband, arguably a bad source for this information, testified to Emily's unusual character. She said that she took everything to extremes. Mrs. Powell said that Emily nearly rode a horse to death as a kid, and she was known to drink eight cups of coffee in a row, and she wasn't really one for moderation or stopping when she got going. She was spontaneous, and she lived in a near-constant state of anxiety, and Mrs. Powell claimed to always know something would happen to her, but she didn't really expect this murder and attempted suicide to take place. Emily Powell's brothers came and collected her from Denver to take back to Philadelphia, and she left under guard on January 8, 1920, and was determined to be insane by a Philadelphia Lunacy Commission and spent the rest of her life in a hospital. She died on July 14, 1943, and was only survived by her son, Horace. And what exactly the role is of Christian science in this story is anybody's guess. But there are so many murders that I found in which Christian science is sort of just alluded to as this baneful existing thing that's hanging over people's heads and that's ruining their life. And it's going to be something to try to piece this apart and make sense of this. But um, we might try to do it here in the next few months. So that's that. I'll have a larger episode at around the end of the month. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Colored Red Podcast for photos and updates associated with episodes, including this one today. I do have a very old grainy photo of Emily and her daughter Jacqueline. And on my Instagram, I promise you guys it's a meme-free zone. It's just straight-up business on there, so don't worry about that. And uh, stay sane. Until next time, everyone. Mm-hmm.